I'm going to experiment tonight with a a work in progress, which is a rewrite of a Hafiz poem that I share quite often here. And it the, the the way the poem goes ordinarily, and it's always useful to hear as well. Uh, it's a um, it's a poem about our obsession with um, with time. He says, uh, "What do people who are sad have in common? They have all built a shrine to the past." and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. So tonight I wanted to do the reverse. Uh, What do people who are anxious have in common? They have all built a shrine to the future and often go there and do a strange wail and worry. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. Our mind, I think maybe the way it's wired, has a maniacal, a diabolical tendency to project, to create a notion that our life, our peace, our freedom, our joy, our love will not begin until we get it together, until the end of the rainbow, until the end of the week, until the vacation, until the relationship, until what else? Until, until, until. And it, it is so insidious, it's so persistent that we don't even know how much of the time we are spending postponing a sense of well-being to uh, when I get what I want. That's why I often so much, uh, so love that the Rumi poem where he said, uh, where he said, failure is the key to the king or queendom within. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring, and finally I have no will. We know better than this. We know that the future never arrives because time is always now. Yet our mind will persistently create an image of a future that is uh, that's better than now, and that that's when life really starts. And this is precisely what the Buddha was uh, was recognizing when he talked about the state of what he called bhava, or the state of becoming. That our mind it tends to be in reaction to just the various. Um, sense experiences that are happening every moment in reaction to the everyday sense experiences, our mind goes into a, a search, a search to get rid of the unpleasant, a search to have more of the pleasant, and that spawns a whole world of, of, uh, of complications, a whole world of, of discursive thought that 
tends to frame our whole identity to and tethers our whole sense of well-being and identity to uh, that day when things will work out. Then I can truly live. And the fact is uh, that that day never comes. We may get what we want. We may uh, want what we get. But all of that life, while we were in that state, in that, that persistent view that my life won't start until I get there, all that life goes unlived. All that life gets filled with, a, with the effect of that postponement, which is a feeling of anxiety and worry. Because there is always that possibility that that future won't deliver. I won't get what I want. I won't want what I get. I will, um, I will, um, I will be left unhappy. Meanwhile, the very state of waiting and hoping, the very state of viewing that our life doesn't begin until I finish that project, until I finish my taxes. I've actually been working on my taxes. I'm, I'm one of the extenders. <laughs> and I noticed that, that sense this weekend as I was plodding through the taxes. I'll be happy when this is over. But fortunately, I've talked about this enough to realize that even, even in the midst of doing taxes, I don't have to... I don't have to overlook the possibility. I don't have to miss the possibility of, uh, of the amazingness of even sitting there doing my taxes, being able to decipher numbers, to be able to... All those things that we can so easily take for granted, things that are so ordinary, but, and they seem mundanely ordinary when we're busy trying to get away from them. And then when I'm actually doing it, there was a certain joy in entering that stream. But our mind has so habitually inclined toward what's next that it leaves in its wake a feeling of, a chronic feeling of restlessness, worry, and agitation. So the Buddha wanted us to be really, really clear. And of course, when you offer teachings, you're just offering a Appointing, you're offering a conceptual framework, but that's one that is what could be considered one Dharma door, one doorway to to uh, helping to turn our attention uh, away from our one turn the light on our usual preoccupation, so that at least we can see in real time what I'm doing with my mind. What am I? What am I postponing for? What am I? Uh, what, what kind of deluded notions am I falling into? But really, the teachings are ultimately to, to make us just stop, uh, stop postponing. Stop looking for anywhere, any moment, other than the very one that you're living for your salvation. As I've said many times, I quoted Eckhart Tolle where he says, there is no salvation in time. You can only be free now. Um, you cannot be free in the future. 
It's not at the end of this Dharma talk. It's really in the in the hearing. There's just the hearing, and then listening, just listening, and the in the feeling your body sitting here, just the sitting your feeling your body sitting here. That's all. If you look beyond that, other than to just recognize that you're, if, of course, if you notice that you're looking beyond this present moment, that's a moment of being here, noticing that your, your mind is projecting. That's fine. Our mind does a lot of projecting, but often we don't know that we're projecting. We don't know that we're fabricating an imagined future that never arrives because we're lost in it. We're dreaming. We're in a waking dream. So the Dharma just says, wake up and notice what you're doing. Notice, oh, that's a thought of the future. Here I am. Oh, that's a thought of the past. I don't have to, once I notice that, I don't have to go there to do a strange wail and worship. I can just notice. Isn't that wonderful to be able to think in the present about the imagined future? Isn't it wonderful to be able to think about the past? Isn't it painful to see what, what my body does when I think that my happiness depends on, on whether, I, whether I achieve great success, whether I'm recognized, whether I'm seen, whether I'm healed, whether I solve my big issue? Everybody have a big issue here? So how many of you think, I can't be happy till it's over with? It's, it's so insidious. It's, every, it's our everyday thought. Meanwhile, it is, um, it's missing the point of life. The point of life is always arrived at in the immediate moment. There's no such thing as tomorrow. That's just another idea. So the way the Buddha clarified this point, the teaching, is that he framed it many different ways. But on one hand, he talked about the state of what he called bhava, or becoming, which is an expression of the, uh, the second noble truth, craving for becoming, craving for existence, craving for what's next, being in a state of thirst and hunger. And when we're in a state of thirst and hunger, we believe that something else other than what's happening, something has to change in order for me to be well. That is the trance of the wanting mind, of the waiting mind, of the becoming mind. And his instruction for this is to abandon it. But we don't just abandon it. You can't just let it go until you actually see the suffering of holding on. And so he clarified very early in his uh, turning of the wheel of the Dharma and his description of the of the Four Noble Truths and the, specifically the Eightfold Path, he says that there is, there is a way to, to be truly happy. There is a way to be truly happy. And, of course, I've been, tonight I've been pointing to the place to be truly happy, and it's only now. But he said there's a way to be truly happy. There is a way to be happy in a relative sense, way to have a lot of pleasure, have a good life, have good friends, have good this, good... You can, there are conditions that you can... seeds that you can plant that can lead to a generally a very happy life. And if you're a good person, if you act with what he called... Uh, and if you cultivate what he called purity of action, 
you purify your actions, you, you, you try not to cause too much harm, you try to take care with your speech, you try to take care with your livelihood, all the things we talk about every week here. Try to take care with your actions, be sensitive to the impact of your actions, impact of what you do, how you do it. Be clear about your motivation for doing things and generally or always have your motivation. Try to clarify your motivation so that it's not just about looking good, that it's really about being of benefit, of being of, of uh, leaving a, the world a better place than you found it, practicing non-harming. And let that really drive your action so that you, you try not to cause harm. And when I, you know, this is the first night of Yom Kippur. I was, you know, last week I talked about Rosh Hashanah, the days of awe. And this is the beginning of the 24 hours of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement where you, you reflect on, if you're one of those middle people or <laughs> that I talked about last week, that um, you may not be altogether pure in your, in your actions, this is a time to really reflect on things that you've done that weren't so wholesome and to set your ship in the, in the right direction and ask for forgiveness, extend forgiveness, and then really uh, try to etch into the, as they describe it in Judaism, etch into the book of life the, um, the intentions of, of non-harming, essentially. And so I think about my, my own unwholesome actions, and I think about my impatience and my critical, the ways that I'm critical with my family, the ways that I'm uh, aggressive in my speech at times, how, eat, how short my fuse is in moments. And, and that's the kind of thing I want to reflect on and, and not do so much uh, next year <laughs> if I make it, if I, if I, stay, if I stay in the game. You know, I may have already been, as, as that third type of person I spoke of last week, I may have been banished from, <laughs> from the book of life. But no, I think I'm still in the game. So this is what I want to do because I know, as the, at least as the Buddha suggested, that if I practice non-harming, I live wisely, not for some other future time, but in real time, I will notice that there is a joy in fact, the Buddha called it a bliss that comes from blamelessness, a bliss of noticing, of knowing that there, you're just not leaving a lot of trails from your actions. You don't have to keep replaying something you've said or something you did. You can, you can feel that joy of, of blamelessness and that you know that you are offering by your purity of action, you are offering the gift this is a twist on the, on the word fearlessness, but the gift of fearlessness to others, that you are, you are showing up truthfully, uh, kindly, authentically, and so people around you don't have to be afraid of you. You're a safe refuge. You're a safe person to be around. And that's, there's a joy in that. There's a joy in being an environment of safety for others, and especially an environment of safety for yourself. So you don't have to be experiencing constantly the effects of, of what you've said or done or haven't said or done. Does that ring any bells for anyone? Anybody cause any harm this year, knowingly or unknowingly, by your thoughts, words, or actions?
you know, we've all done that. So this is a very important time to ask for and extend forgiveness. And this, in fact, at least in the teachings, and I've seen it from my own experience, from my slow, ev- slowly evolving purification of my actions, <laughs> I've seen that it leads to a greater sense of well-being. And the Buddha said that this purity of action gives rise to, makes available to us, all manner of um, capacity to enjoy the amazing world of the senses. This sensual world with all its, with all its perceptions, its inner sense, with all its uh, myriad colors and shapes, and all the m- amazing ways that we can uh, that we can experience pleasure. And he called this the, the happiness of the world of sense pleasures. And that living a, a wholesome life is the foundation for being able to enjoy the pleasures of the senses. Because if you're really struggling and suffering, replaying over and over, or planning your revenge, or, or, ex- or whatever it is that you're doing that's causing harm, you cannot enjoy life at the same time. You can't, really, you can't really take it in. You can't really drink from the amazing well of, of sensual pleasure that is so effulgent and so present in every moment, and yet it's so easily missed when we're busy noodling about, uh, about what, I, what I said or what I did or what I didn't say or what I didn't do, and we're just, we just can't really enjoy our life when we're in that preoccupation with the effects of our actions, among other things. The Buddha called that kind of happiness also, he called it um, lokiya sukha, worldly happiness, the happiness that comes uh, when conditions are right, when the conditions come together, when you do this, you get that. And that's a kind of pleasure. He also called that kind of happiness, I think I may have even mentioned this last week, he called Lokiya Sukha also uh, just so that we didn't stop there as a, as a source of true happiness, of reliable happiness, just so we didn't just think that's the end-all and the be-all, even though it's wonderful. He also described this happiness of uh, conditional happiness or or the worldly happiness, he called it the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage, a happiness that depends on conditions being a certain way, the happiness that, that is um, it's bound happiness. It's, it's, not, um, it's not unconditional happiness. So when I heard this the first time, I realized, wow. So... What I've held most near and dear, getting what I want, I think I've told the story here that I was about 25, 24 years old, and I was on this, I was traveling in Central America. My cousin was living there at the time, and I went to visit him, and he had this little coffee farm, and I was in this little hammock on the top of a hill, this coffee farm, a lovely place. And I was just rocking in this hammock. And I realized in that moment that just lying there, it was the first time in my whole life, 24 years, 
from by some standards that's not a very long life but at 24 that was the first time i had ever not wanted to be somewhere else that was the first moment that i wasn't busy making other plans that i wasn't involved in some kind of dress rehearsal for when i was truly going to find joy and happiness the first moment and it shocked me it was like a shock that i had missed basically 24 years while i was busy uh looking for the next pleasure because i hadn't recognized that happiness associated with just having just being able to enjoy the world of sense pleasures uh being addicted to that level of happiness left me with crumbs with short periods of pleasure followed by the loss of that pleasure followed by the 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 mind's need to generate another one to fill the hole that's left after the one before and that i had gotten on a cycle on a what we call the wheel of samsara an endless wandering an endless searching so i was really just busy 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 trying to get to the next thing so it was a wake up call and then i got exposed to the the teachings of the buddha and he said well you know that's not a very refined it's wonderful to live a good life and to have lots of pleasure but it's it's got some it's got some dangers and defects it's unreliable it's subsumed under the umbrella of the first noble truth it's inherently unsatisfactory and it just puts you on that wheel and so like the buddha i started meditating a little more intensely and when i started meditating i got really happy and really high got really turned on by the practice and very much like the buddha and i think all of us go through the same cycle it's not unique to me but i got enamored with a much more refined kind of uh pleasure which was the pleasure of concentration the pleasure of having my mind and body unified and in the same place the incredible pleasure of of being momentarily in a place of one pointedness where i was no where there was uh, there it felt as though there was no separation between me and the world and i was just uh, happy as a clam and knew f- from some of the teachings that this was this was uh what the buddha called purity of mind the happiness of a concentrated heart and mind a purity of mind is such a more refined kind of pleasure and uh it was very intoxicating and i know people who've had this kind of experience most people who've meditated had been on meditation retreats had any kind of sustained period of practice have experienced this these moments where there is purity where you you don't want to be somewhere else your mind is not moving you're temporarily free of any preoccupations you're temporarily free of any of the hindrances of worry of doubt of fear of wanting of aversion of dullness it's just you're just on fire just full and because i'd heard a few teachings that by this time i saw i heard the buddha or read the or heard from others what the buddha said oh this is um 
This is a springboard to nirvana. But this is not nirvana. This is a springboard to nirvana, but it's if you get attached to it, it will become the corruption of insight. So then I had to somehow navigate this world of seeing the great blessings and benefits of this temporary freedom, but realizing, realized, as the Buddha described, that this freedom is still under the umbrella of dukkha. This is still unsatisfactory, still unreliable, still subject to the same decay and change and loss as every other experience you've chased after in your life. Many, many benefits and highly and very much worth cultivating, but not as an end, not as true happiness. This concentration has never made anybody true happiness, truly happy. Bliss has never made anybody truly happy. And in many cases, leaves in its wake that feeling again of some loss and then the tendency to then fill up the mind with the with the demand and the urge to replicate that experience again. And what happens? We're off on the wheel again of samsara. It's endless wandering. So the Buddha said, this is all worldly happiness. This is just refined worldly happiness. And you need to aim for something um, beyond this. There is a field of experience, as he said, beyond this entire world of, of mind that is or beyond, this, beyond all these experiences that's neither this world or another nor both, neither moon nor sun, neither arising nor passing away. There is a, there is a, a, there is a liberation. There is a well-being that does not depend on conditions. Does, does not depend on the end of the weekend or the end of the work week. Does not depend on getting what you want. Does not depend on not wanting what you get or getting rid of what you don't want. There is a well-being that is unconditioned, unassailable. He called it lokutra sukha, a happiness that is free. And that this is if you're going to aim for happiness, aim for this kind of happiness. And you, may, you will realize in the process that all the other kinds of pleasures still come in the wake of that. You end up being a lot more concentrated, your life much more passionately focused in the present, unified, able to really enjoy the world of sense pleasures, but you've stopped making them your devotion. You've stopped... Getting, you've stopped falling into what he called the misplaced faith that the pleasures of the senses will make you truly happy. So that the, perp, the aim then is to aim for the highest happiness, the happiness of freedom, lokutra sukha. And how do we realize the highest happiness of freedom? Anybody want to say, how do we realize this highest happiness? Let go is one way. Yeah, if you let go a little, as Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. 
And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. What does that mean, let go? That means to be fully present, to completely orient yourself to the life of the present moment. And when, if you are orienting yourself, orienting your attention to the present moment, you're not looking ahead, you're not looking back, you're not looking sideways, you're not saying if only, you're not saying what if. When you're not moving ahead and you're not moving back, you're not I-making and my-making, you're not making a whole story about what I want to happen. What is, is not is that, is not that moment of being naturally present? Not adding anything to what's already here. The very awareness through which you're perceiving right now, when you, when it simply shines simply on what's happening. This is a, this is the seed of, of freedom. This is a moment of freedom. This is a moment of a well-being that doesn't depend on anything could be happening. You could be noticing anything. And if, you're, if there's full awareness of that, even somebody was describing before the sitting, having pain in their hip. And the tendency of our mind, especially as we, as we age, is to see that as a feature of aging. And then our mind will easily go into the story of I am somebody who's getting old who will eventually become so diminished that this pain is small potatoes compared to what comes next. And by the time 30 seconds are are passed, we're feeling really miserable. And this this is what is meant by not doing well with death and dying not doing well with aging. And what really happened? Nothing happened except a pain in the leg. But we stopped. We, we didn't just stop with the reality of the pain in the leg. We, our mind projected into the, projected ourselves and our identity. This is what I call I-making and me-making. And it's natural when you hit a certain age, when your body hits a certain age, to have lots of thoughts about, about the end game. And because we all know from observation that the end game is not so pretty. But as soon as you think about that and tell yourself a story of that, it produces a feeling of, of, of worry and anxiety and whatever. And then all of a sudden, not just all of a sudden, but our, then our sense of well-being is really dependent on how we do. The point of practice is to die now. Get it over with die to the present moment. And then you realize that all, the whole process of dying, you're already dead. You're already completely here. Dead is, mean, dead to that, to that story. Dead to all those, those, uh, those habits, as Hafiz puts, those habits that can ruin your life. Dead to all those mental habits that keep creating a feeling that I can't be happy now. It's death to that. And uh, that's the, it's the best kind of dying. That's from, I'm, I'm borrowing from Rumi where he says, inside this new love, die. 
the way begins on the other side. Take an axe to this prison wall. Come out the, slide, come out the side and slide out the side and die. You're, old, you're, 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 you're under a thick cloud. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. Slide out the side and die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Then he ends by saying, the speechless full moon comes out now. Notice what happens when either you become mindful of your mind projecting what has to happen in order to be happy and just notice that moment of mindfulness of thinking Let that be the reminder of your love of being right where you are and see what it's like here again and again and again through your days. What happens when you don't look back and you don't look ahead? Or if you look back and look ahead, notice that you're doing that. That's a moment of mindful attention. Notice what that's like when you're really here. Notice if anything could make you any happier than that. And as Hafiz, since I keep quoting him tonight, as he says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days on end like a broken man behind a farting camel. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins. And the counterfeit coins that I'm speaking about tonight is that, is that persistent often uh, so persistent that we don't notice it, that persistent tendency to think that our life really begins when we get what we want. And that's just delusion. So the Buddha said, aim for this happiness that doesn't depend on that. And the way he realized it is he started paying attention to everything so carefully and he saw that everything was in a constant state of flux. Anything he could notice, anything he could, he could enjoy was so fleeting that his, it made his mind, it made it, it made it seem to him that trying to, to, that holding on to anything that was changing was, was created a burning, created a, a feeling of a tight fist, it, it created a, a sense of misery. And the more he saw how everything changed, the more he saw the absurdity of trying to hold on to any of it and try to make our sense of well-being dependent on it. And the more he let go, the more he saw that bore witness, is that bore witness to the changing nature of things, his mind opened and relaxed. And then in a flash of insight, he realized that uh, the well-being that he was really searching for was just himself, the very nature of his mind. So this is why we practice. Uh, Practice um, to to not add to the burden of craving, of clinging, of greed, of hatred, of ignorance that comes from being caught in this loop, but but unleashing our sense of freedom and the love that flows from that and so that we can be a benefit rather than be just just for ourselves. I brought along a passage from Rabbi Hillel where he said, if I am not for myself, who is for me? Who is for me? 
So it's really up to each of us. But he says, if I'm only for myself, what am I? But he, then he finally says, if not now, when? So if not now, when? This is the, um, this is the end of suffering right here. This is the happiness of a Buddha. So I think I'll end tonight by just having a few minutes of of, um, forgiveness if each of us could contemplate, uh, consider that if if we have uh, done anything or haven't done something, if we've said something or haven't said something, if we've thought something or we haven't thought something uh, that may have caused some suffering to ourselves or others, that we, as much as we're able to, um, first and foremost, to forgive ourselves. And if we've caused any harm knowingly or unknowingly through our thoughts, words, or actions, what we said or haven't said, done or didn't do, thought or didn't think, uh, we can in this moment ask for forgiveness to anyone who may have felt harmed by, by us. And we can also reflect on anyone in our lives, in our whole world, that we have felt harmed by through their thoughts, what they thought or didn't think or failed to think, what they did or failed to do, what they said or didn't say. If anyone has caused us any harm to the best of our ability at this time, we forgive them. So forgiveness is a is one of the expressions of letting go. And we do it not just for that person, we do it uh, also for ourselves. As it's so painful to hold on. So may all beings learn to forgive, but not forget. Uh, May all beings be forgiven and uh, forgive. May all beings be free. May all beings realize the highest happiness. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated uh, to the welfare and benefit of all beings, not just for ourselves. May all beings be liberated. So this means, this conversation, just a reminder, this means that uh, you have to even pay attention to those thoughts. If only I meditated enough, if only I went to enough retreats, and only if I could do the three-month retreat, if only I could become a monastic, all these, these versions of postponement, just see them for what they are, their thoughts. There are no conditions for happiness. So thanks for listening. 
And as always, uh, such a pleasure to be with you. And uh, I w- will commit to taking a little more, doing a little more dialoguing, more questions next time. I want to um, just say that last week I inaugurated the an evening at uh, Mission Dharma uh, Dana program where the invitation is, and there's some flyers in the back, to, to offer uh, the Dana for the evening, which is the cost for our room rental is $150 a week. And so any r- help with the room rental is always very helpful to because that's the one thing that, that creates a little bit of pressure for us to have enough money to pay. But last week after... Uh, Inaugurating this new program that we have here, someone very kindly, uh, anonymously offered the the Donna for one week, and eventually we will have. Is there a plaque up yet? Is it up? Anyway, you so feel free at any time you feel that that impulse, that further practice of letting go of generosity to um, to perhaps offer an evening at um, Mission Dharma. In the meantime, any kind of support for the room rental is appreciated. And also, any support for, the being, for me being able to continue to do this or whoever takes this seat to also practice what we call teacher dana, generosity, because all the teachings are offered freely uh, because they're considered priceless so they can be accessible to everyone. But the way that they are able to continue as if we have this mutuality, this mutual exchange. So thank you in advance. And in the event that you haven't been here before and you want to offer Donna, you can make a checkout also to the church here and it becomes tax deductible. St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church put Mission Dharma on the memo line and uh, you can receive a tax deduction letter. Anyway, thanks for your practice. See you next Tuesday, hopefully. takes about 24 hours to upload, okay. but the person who generally does it is out of town, but they, there may be somebody else. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.